Hello and welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 106. Thanks for listening everybody. Welcome back. I hope your... well, I hope your whole life is just going great. Uh, here in the uh, podcast studio, we're having some technical issues, but we will power through to bring you the finest entertainment that you could possibly ask for the money that you paid for this entertainment. But first, a Mad Mike Hughes update. I feel like we should have a theme song for Mad Mike. Mad Mike, for those of you who haven't listened to the last several episodes, since I seem to have become preoccupied with this, he is a limousine driver in California somewhere. And he has been trying for some time to build a rocket, like in his backyard with which to launch himself uh, into the, I guess, upper atmosphere so that he can take photos. I, I don't know if this was a, his original mission. I kind of get the sense that maybe he just wanted to do this. But it takes money to build a rocket. So he has teamed up with some flat earth organizations who are helping to fund his plan. Uh, he got himself a mobile home that he converted into a launch pad. Uh, he was all set back in November, I believe, to launch himself and take these photos to prove once and for all that the media and scientists are lying to us, and in fact, the Earth is flat. I think we would have already proven this by all the dragon flatulence that we could probably detect on some sort of meter, because all the old-timey maps that I've seen depicting the Earth as flat have dragons on either end of the disc that we're all sort of walking around on, kind of guarding things, I guess. So I would think we would have noticed if there were huge dragons, you know, sitting over the horizon. But Mad Mike is going to prove once and for all that this is, is a flat earth. He ran some, some technical problems, though. First, the government wouldn't give him a permit. Uh, I mean, he, tried, he was trying to do this all legally. They wouldn't give him a permit, I think, largely because they couldn't figure out what to how to write the permit for this kind of thing. Then he had some technical issues. His uh, mobile home launch pad broke down. Um, there were probably some suspense, or, or rather some uh, expense issues. He has now teamed up with, I don't know what this is, some sort of cable network, I guess. And he is all set in February to launch, uh, to, to make his launch. He's going to do it in Nevada somewhere. And he has a Facebook page, Mad Mike does. The name on the page is actually Mad Mike Hughes. I'm just seeing if what recent updates we have. Now, as you're hearing this episode, I'm recording this on January 28th, and Mad Mike's been on a bit of a tear the last 24 hours with sort of these rambling uh, Facebook posts decrying, uh, among other things, uh, indoctrination in public schools, cognitive dissonance, uh, 1 in 25 people who have, according to Mad Mike, I'm sure rigorous science, scientific testing, he has determined that 1 in 25 people have sociopathic tendencies. Over 40, 50 million people actually voted for Hillary. And some people want to question why I choose to pursue incredible goals. He has put in a request that people go to his GoFundMe account. The most recent post is referencing the moron and criminal at MGTV is ignoring all cease and desist orders, so we now believe... Uh, who he is, and we'll have our own MGTV fan page. I don't know what MGTV is. In earlier posts, see if I can find it. 
Oh, that's right. As you're, what I started to say before, this episode is being recorded on January 28th. And you're hearing it, if you're listening to it on the day that it comes out, you're hearing it on, on February 4th. According to Mad Mike, according to his Facebook page, the launch was supposed to happen February 3rd. So you guys can actually hear, you know, find out for yourselves what has happened. I don't know uh, at this point because, you know, time and all that. But in the next episode of this podcast, I am sure that I will talk about Mad Mike's fateful voyage. So we'll see what happens. If you guys uh, happen to find out what Mad Mike did, or how he did, after this episode comes out, uh, go ahead and email me or whatever to uh, so that we can share the joy together. So I just pulled up Mad Mike's GoFundMe account. At the top of the screen that just came up, it says, This campaign is trending. But it also says, Mad Mike has a $10,000 goal. As of today, uh, which I said is January 28, Mad Mike has raised... $50. And it took him, it took four people to come up with that $50. Now, to be fair, his post saying on Facebook saying go to my GoFundMe account was uh, today. Or I'm sorry, on Friday at 2 p.m. He went on Facebook and said, here's a link to my GoFundMe account. Any help is appreciated. Now, according to GoFundMe, the account's been up for one day. And has gotten four donations, totaling $50 out of his $10,000 goal. In the explanation on GoFundMe, he says that he is that he launches on board his steam-powered homemade rocket on Saturday, February 3rd, a wild stunt designed to raise awareness for my ultimate challenge, the space launch. This will take me 62 miles up to the Kármán line, the boundary between our atmosphere and outer space. No one has ever attempted this hype before at a, as a solo endeavor. This post has been shared 87 times on Facebook. He got a $25 donation, a $10 donation, a $5 donation, and a $10 donation. I don't entirely know how GoFundMe works. I mean, I know the basic concept, of course. You know, like on Patreon, a lot of times people will give incentives to uh, to donate at certain levels. I don't see anything like that here. I guess maybe that's not a thing with GoFundMe, but... So yeah, he, after eh, roughly a day, going on two days now, he's raised a total of 50 bucks. This doesn't say how long this campaign is going. Like I said, the launch is scheduled for February 3rd. So Mad Mike Hughes has a GoFundMe page if you want to go donate. He's on Facebook if you want to follow his progress. And of course, you know, for goodness sakes, when you go on a hike or something, you know, keep your eyes open and be careful you don't fall off the edge of the world. All right. Well, that's enough of that for now. In other news, there is no other news. Nothing else has happened in the world. Uh, well, Mort Walker died. I saw that this morning uh, as I'm recording this. He, of course, is the legendary cartoonist behind Beetle Bailey, which I think actually still runs in a lot of newspapers, uh, even though it's been around forever. Although I think in over the years, I think his kid has taken over some of the duties you know, putting out the comic strip. I'm pretty sure he did other comic strips, too. I'm trying to pull it up here. Died at age 94 in Connecticut. His son, Greg Walker, said his father drew the cartoon Beetle Bailey uh, as a uh, the cartoon of a work-shy army private for 68 years, and he was drawing up to the end. At his peak, Beetle Bailey ran in 1,800 newspapers around the world with 200 million readers uh, and debuted in 1950. 
Beetle was a college student originally when the cartoon uh, debuted, but soon enlisted uh, in the armed forces. Beetle Bailey, the comic strip, of course, had Sergeant Snorkel, General Haftrat. When I was a kid, at various times, my brothers worked at bookstores. And, you know, this was a long time ago. So how, I don't think they do this now, but how bookstores would get rid of inventory that didn't sell within uh, whatever period of time the publisher gave them to sell it. Uh, the publishers didn't want the actual books back. What they wanted were the covers off the books. I guess, you know, something to document that the physical book wasn't sold. But then the bookstores could just, you know, again, this was a long time ago, so they would just toss them out in the dumpster in the back. But once in a while, with permission or otherwise, bookstore employees would just grab whatever they wanted out of the dumpster, essentially, you know, save it from the dumpster. So I got, that's how I got a lot of comic strip books. Uh, Peanuts, you know, Charlie Brown and Snoopy, definitely. I got a lot of those. But I, they would also, my brothers would also get me uh, Beetle Bailey and Family Circus and BC, uh, Heathcliff. Uh, uh, I don't know if I got any Garfield. Um, I had a lot of Garfield books when I was a kid, but I don't think I got any that way. But yeah, Beetle Bailey was definitely one uh, that I got a bunch of uh, the digests that way. And I would sit and read them, you know, Saturday afternoons. That's kind of what I did. I'd sit and read these comic strip books. Um, so yeah, Beetle Bailey was uh, popular. Now, Beetle Bailey suffered from the same thing that a lot of comic strips suffered from after, you know, several decades. They kind of ran out of ideas, and it just kind of became the same comic every day. It never really... Uh, progressed through the uh, through the generations. This obituary that I'm reading says that in 2000, Mort Walker was awarded the Army's highest civilian honor, the Distinguished Civilian Service Award, for his work and military service. Um, it doesn't say anything about him doing other comics, although I thought he did. Let's see what Wikipedia does. So he created Beetle Bailey in 1950 and High and Lois in 1954. Uh, I think I had a couple of those digests too. So that was the other one that I was thinking of. Uh, he did High and Lois with uh, cartoonist Dick Brown. Apparently High and Lois was originally a spin-off of Beetle Bailey, because Lois was Beetle's sister. I never knew that. He also used a pseudonym, Addison, to write a comic called, I swear this is the name, Boner's Ark, in 1968. Other comic strips created by Walker include, because I'm just going to leave Boner's Ark right there, do with that what you will, uh, other comic strips created by Walker include Gaiman and Patches, Mrs. Fitz's Flats, The Evermores, Sam's Strip, and Sam and Silo. Uh, those last two he did with another cartoonist named Jerry Dumas. He opened the Museum of Cartoon Art in 1974, the first museum uh, devoted uh, to the art of comics, initially located in Greenwich, Connecticut, Rybrook, New York, before moving to ba Boca Raton, Florida in 1992. Between his multiple marriages. He had ten children. Walker's son, Brian and Greg, produced the High and Lois strip with Chance Brown. So there you go. If you're a fan of the comic strips page, surely Beetle Bailey and High and Lois were among the comics that you grew up reading, like me, and, you know, it, it's very sad. Um, you know, we are sorry to hear of the loss, and, you know, it's just another uh, sign that times are changing, right? We uh, fans of Atari know that. Uh, we spend a lot of our time reveling in uh, entertainment of a bygone era, and we're doing what we can to uh, to keep it going in our own way. So now I guess what people can do is, you know, keep reading Beetle Bailey and keep that alive. I do wonder if the strip will go on. 
sounds like his kids have already been working on it over the years, so I presumably it could keep going. So we'll see. All right, what else? In other news, there is no other news. Let's get on to this week's game. This week's game is... You love our video games, or we'll buy them back. Because we have Commando Wave with action above and below. Word Zapper is a fast action at a quick time. Powering Inferno, Sneak and Peek, and Space Jockey 2. Yes, you love our games, or we'll buy them back. For video action, and it's guaranteed hot. Look for the name... Commando Raid, U.S. Games, 1982. Commando Raid, thankfully, given some of the games we've done recently, has a very simple instruction manual. We're told that this is a single-player, full-color game simulating arcade action and designed to be played on the Atari Video Computer System or Series Video Arcade, if you didn't know that already. You are in defense of your buildings, which have come under attack by Android Commando Raiders. Without... Warning, they appear, intent on capturing your buildings and destroying your gun encampment. First, the troop-carrying helicopters fly in, dropping android paratroopers to test your defenses. Soon, the sky is filled with fluttering helicopters and... Do helicopters flutter? Really? I think if your helicopter is fluttering, you've got some sort of um, fuel line problem or something. Uh, but anyway, wave after wave of android paratroopers fill the sky. They must be destroyed. Each paratrooper allowed to land on a building destroys a portion of that building. If three paratroopers land on a building, it will be totally destroyed. It must be considered under commando control. Worse still, the androids can uh, the androids can now tunnel toward your gun encampment. Each paratrooper who lands on that building expands the tunnel. If they are not stopped, they will plant an explosive charge under the gun. In the midst of the battle, an aircraft may appear. It will drop a devastating bomb which can destroy all buildings and the gun encampment. You must shoot it down, or at least shoot the bomb it drops. If you miss, it's back to basic training. I'm using the joystick for this one, uh, in the left uh, joystick control. The right joystick is not used. Uh, I guess two-player game is not an option with this one. Score, uh, shooting down a helicopter or a bomber equals 200 points. Shooting down a commando, paratrooper, or a bomb is equal to 115 points. Every 10,000 points you get a new building to take the place of the building that is most badly damaged. A ringing bell signals the award. There are eight levels of play, each level defined by a different colored paratrooper squad. Each level contains more paratroopers in a single helicopter attack. Uh, and that's it. That's how you play. Oh, well, difficulty switches. The left difficulty switch selects straight bullets or steerable missiles. In position A, you get straight bullets. In position B, you get steerable missiles. The right difficulty switch selects the bomber. Position A, no bomber. Position B, bomber. Oh, this is interesting. The color switch selects anti-aircraft fire control, not actually color. Color uh, on the color switch equals manual fire. Black and white equals automatic fire. Interesting. And that is how you play Commando Raid. It is mercifully simple. But is it mercifully simple to play, but difficult to master? Hmm? Good question. That's why I have a podcast. In German, in case you were wondering, this game is called... Landung in der Normandie. Wow. Which I think probably literally translates as landing in Normandy. Which obviously has a World War II connotation that you don't really get from uh, the manual. So that's interesting. Were there a lot of androids in World War II? 
My kid, she's 12, she's working on a report, a presentation for some sort of a history fair uh, about World War II, specifically the Potsdam Conference for you World War II history buffs. I have to ask her where the Android part of her presentation comes in. Hmm, because she showed me yesterday some of the text of what she's going to put in her presentation. I didn't say anything about Androids. I hope she doesn't fail. If she fails, she's not going to get that scholarship to college. And if that happens, then i got to pony up for it, which is bad, because I spent her college fund on Atari games. Sorry, kid. Anyway, what was I talking about? The Atari Wiki, which is not something I spend a lot of time with, actually, although I should, seems like. But the Atari Wiki tells us that Commando Raid enjoyed a good reputation, earning a B- from the video game critic, 80% from Rage Games, and a 67% rating from the Game Freaks website. The video game critic, if you pull up the review tells us that for a virtually unknown game, the shooter is surprisingly enjoyable. The screen is beautiful, picturesque sunset behind the silhouettes, which I was really struck by when I pulled up, um, you know, I pulled the game up on the Atari, and it came up on my screen. Uh, it is really kind of lovely. Overall, the video game critic seems to enjoy the game. Commando Raid's collision detection is questionable at times, but that inadvertently makes the game more challenging. And then he adds in parentheses, and realistic? I like the game. It's a good-looking good shooter that mixes rapid-fire shooting with a touch of strategy. The A to Z of Atari 2600 Games Volume 1 points out the Commando Raid is an interesting take on Atari's Missile Command, which resonates big time with me because I'm a big Missile Command fan. It's one of my favorite Atari games. The reviewer here thinks the graphics are stunning with high-res sprites and a gorgeous sunset in the background. Everybody talks about the sunset, which really is quite impressive. Sound is good too, and while the gameplay is a bit repetitive, there is still lots of fun to be had. 7 out of 10 stars, I guess. Alright, so after the break, we're going commando. Raid, that is. Put your pants on for crying out loud. So, hi, it's me, Bill. A funny thing happened on the way to the field report today. I uh, sat down here on the uh, Sunday morning that I'm enjoying uh, recording this podcast and had my coffee and my Atari and my uh, Commando Raid cart, popped it in, turned on, the lovely sunset appeared on my screen, uh, the buildings and the, the big gun that you're supposed to use to blast those android paratroopers and hit reset and my little gun started to wiggle on screen get your minds out of the gutter but I thought huh those paratroopers are taking a long time to show up and uh hey I can't fire my gun which you know happens to everybody but it didn't matter because there was nothing to shoot at so my gun would move, I, the joystick could move the gun, but it wouldn't fire, and I didn't have any planes to shoot. I tried resetting it, I tried taking the card out and putting it back in, nothing. So I apparently got a bum copy of Commando Raid, which was a problem, because I was already all set to do Commando Raid, and I didn't have anything prepared for another game. So this is me talking about how I did not play Commando Raid this week, which kind of bums me out. Because uh, it sounds like a fun game. You know, like the A to Z of Atari games said, it sounds like it's got a bit 
of a Missile Command vibe, and I really do like Missile Command. So, as consolation, to give you some semblance of, you know, the field report, because I know you love the field report, here's a little bit of me watching somebody else play Commando Raid. I'm pulling up the uh, video on YouTube right now. The uh, planes have uh, swooped in. Oh, wow, he almost missed that paratrooper. Uh, wow, this guy's doing a really good job. These paratroopers aren't hitting any of his buildings. This really does look like a fun game. Maybe I'll get to play it someday. I like the sounds. Very uh, vintage Atari, but, you know, kind of keeps you in the action. Wow. None of these... Well, I guess one of the paratroopers got through. Did some damage to one of the buildings. Stop firing. There's nothing on screen. Okay, now he's at the next wave. The paratroopers were white. Now they're orange. Um, the planes look like, you know, big troop-carrying planes. The paratroopers look like parachuting paratroopers. There's nothing particularly android about them. Uh, but that's okay, I guess. Uh, the buildings are pseudo-realistic looking. The big gun just looks like a big gun. Ooh, there's a big scary black plane. Uh, and yeah, that sunset, which is really just, you know, different layers of color. Ooh. Oh, he hit 10,000, so he got another, uh, got one of his buildings back, I guess. Ooh, now they're green. Kind of a yellowish green. Um, yeah, this really does look like a fun game. I'm kind of sad now. If anyone knows where I can get a really cheap copy of Commando Raid, let me know, because, you know, I already paid for one copy. Uh, you know, I don't mind paying to get another copy, but I don't want to spend a whole lot of money. Uh, not that I spent a whole lot to begin with, but, um, yeah. So I'm going to go has a sad and uh, get back to the show. So here's the thing about Commando Raid, uh, from what I've seen anyway. I kind of said it in my, you know, field observation. It has a, a Missile Command vibe, which is what I really liked about it. And it feels like a game that I would have liked to play as a kid and, and would have also sought out at the uh, arcade. So, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of covered it all in the, the field observation. Uh, it just seemed like a fun game. I don't really know, know what else to say about it. I don't remember, I know I've done other U.S. games on the show. I can't remember the names of any off the top of my head. Hold on. U.S. Games, of course, is the uh, serial company game manufacturer, a division of Quaker Oats. Among their published titles, uh, there's a lot of them. The ones that I've done so far, I did Sneak and Peek, which was nothing impressive. I did Squeeze Box. Uh, I did Towering Inferno. Towering Inferno. Uh, Tower. I can't say it now. Towering Inferno, I think, was an okay game. I kind of liked that one. Uh, the other ones were nothing special, as I recall. Uh, and there's a bunch of other ones here, some of which I haven't heard of. Some of which. I won't spoil it now, but I know I have some of these on my uh, production schedule for upcoming episodes. But this, uh, you know, hands down so far, is the best U.S. games game that I've done. Uh, I don't know if it'll be the best ever once I get done playing all the U.S. games games, but uh, we'll see. So I feel good. 
uh, about this game. And, you know, I has a sad, because I didn't actually get to play it. But I will find a working copy somewhere at some point, even though I've already done it on the show. I just want to have it and, and play it. So, anyway. But, that won't stop us from the, the uh, mission of this podcast, which is to delve deep into the psyche of this game. Um, you know, sometimes observation can be more um, revealing than participation because it lets you step back and really watch the, the facial expressions, if you will, and the, the, the uh, eye movement and the, the hand gestures as I anthropomorphize these games. So, what exactly is going on within this game? What is the psychology of the game? Who should we really be thinking about, and who are they exactly? And so we present this week's story within the game. Just before his 300th birthday, Grandpa had his feet replaced with wheels. We call these days where we take note of the chronological moment when our systems activated, when we came to life, if you like, birthdays because it makes the humans more comfortable. But really, it's just our activation day. We were a bunch of singular components before activation day, then our parts were gathered together, then we were assembled, then the android technician flips our activation switch. Each android is built for a particular task. All of us stuck here at this table are still kid androids. Grandpa was an android paratrooper, and he was good at it back in the day and he never lets us grandkids forget it. But 300 years is a long time, even for an android. Parts wear out. The military kept spare parts for a while, for the android paratroopers, at least until they got preoccupied with new, deadlier models of android. They don't make the foot parts Grandpa needs anymore, and HQ keeps moving, so Grandpa couldn't even get a hold of anybody to give him military wheels, so he got an old mechanic android he knows to make them for him. The wheels work pretty well. Grandpa gets around okay, but the squeak drives the rest of us crazy. He won't let us oil his wheels. Either he thinks the squeak is funny, or he just can't hear it. His audio receptors aren't what they used to be. And Grandpa isn't a paratrooper anymore, of course. When he was decommissioned, they removed that circuit, which kind of left him with not much to do. Like I said, androids are programmed with one function, and when they can't do that anymore, that's kind of all there is for them. But Grandpa still remembers what it was like. All of it. Grandpa likes to tell war stories. The parts haven't come in for the up conversion from juvenile android to adult, so we kids can't just say we're too busy to listen. And we get stuck listening to the stories. All of them. One night, Grandpa squeak squeaked up to the dinner, uh, up to the dinner table and said, did I ever tell you kids about the commando raid on Human Town? We told him he had, but that didn't stop him. I strapped on my parachute, he said, and we kid droids settled in for another story. I set my equilibrium sensors to gliding and leapt from the plane. The air was redolent with motor oil as my android brothers and sisters were blasted around me. The stench of android deactivation was all around. The big gun in the city below showed no mercy, the godless humans. But we androids had a mission. We would take that city or deactivate trying. Those buildings were ours. The first couple of buildings went down fast, but that gun they had, it kept firing. What was in those buildings that was so important? Android servo mechanisms? 
the new ones that would last? Or maybe that's where the humans kept their food. They do like to eat. And poop, I guess. Pretty much all they do, the humans. Grandpa adjusted his mandibular joint. When his voice circuit realigned with the jaw amplifier, he spoke again. Or maybe those buildings are where they keep their weapons. Yeah, they'd do anything to protect those. Grandpa went silent for a minute. Sometimes that means there's a short in his vocal box, but I think he was just remembering. He remembers everything, but it takes him longer sometimes. Finally, he goes, Some androids might dream of electric sheep. The wusses. Me? I dream of that day. That day and all the days of deactivation that went with it. We kid droids didn't know what to say. Grandpa's war stories were usually stuff like, War rations were usually in short supply. Sometimes we had to eat the instrument panels out of our tanks. We didn't even have ketchup. But this was something else. This was dark. And I didn't know what to say. Man, Grandpa, I finally said. That sounds... Hey, here's the ketchup, Grandpa said. Who wants fan belts for dinner? And that's our show. Such as it was this week. Incomplete and all. My thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. You can find Atari Bytes on many podcatchers, including Stitcher, iHeartRadio, there are still a few episodes on SoundCloud, or Spotify, or many, many other places. But remember to raid iTunes and leave a commando review of the show. You can even go commando while you do it if you want. I don't care. It's entirely up to you. You can also support the show financially at the Atari Bytes Patreon page, which I hope you'll consider doing, or by picking up Atari Bytes merchandise at Zazzle.com. AB underscore pod underscore store. Links to all of that in the show notes. Our website is ataribytes.libson.com. You can email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the Atari Bytes Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at Atari Bytes. Or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. You can also hit us up on Instagram now, too. And don't forget to check out my other show, It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown, for all your Charlie Brown and Snoopy needs. New episodes drop on the 15th of every month. Next time on Atari Bytes. It's Olympics time, baby! So we're kicking things off. We're kicking the uh, period of the whatever-year Olympiad that we're celebrating this year by playing Atari 7800 Winter Games for, get ready, the 7800. So, until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you. Here's hoping that I actually get to play next week's old game.